it will make me a different person, won't it? Marriage? No, the satisfaction of the flesh. Well, that's a gate I have not been through myself, but... No, it won't make you a different person. I want it. Child, what are you expecting? Hi, and welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing all of the influences on Dunkirk. I've got the feeling that, and pun quite literally intended right now, we're going to be going a little bit leaner on this episode <laughs> i i think so yeah the despite the fact that the movie we watched is three three hours and some change long yeah it's gonna be the longest this might end up being our short we're gonna follow up our longest episode with interstellar with our shortest episode probably on this one yeah probably <laughs> we'll, maybe we'll see yeah we'll see maybe we'll, see we'll it shakes out maybe we'll try to pad things out just like yeah just like the movie we watched this week yeah we'll see good, good lord this episode is going to have an intermission and an overture. And, uh, okay. We're going to go for it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, first, before all that, we have more and more news this week, uh, mostly about, or actually all about Oppenheimer. As the movie's premiere approaches, tickets went on sale today, actually, the day of recording. Uh, this is June 1st to get IMAX tickets for it. We're still waiting on the Bullock Museum to release that link for tickets keep, so we can buy those. Keep refreshing. Yes. Waiting for that email. I got. I have tweet notifications turned on. I am subscribed to their email list, so I'm, I'm ready to go, whatever it happens. We're going to do um, it. But we got some other pieces of information about the movie this week. First off, this movie is going to be Christopher Nolan's longest film. He has said to uh, Total Film that it is... The phrase he used was kissing three hours, whether that's mm. a little, little peck on the cheek or if that's like a full on uh, for all you conservative worship listeners out there. Sloppy wet kiss. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some Chris Tomlin fans out there wonder what that Venn diagram is for our audience. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to count like the movie is three hours or the movie in the credits is three hours, but it is definitely going to be his longest movie. Uh, so it's going to be longer than uh, Interstellar. And it is confirmed today, uh, Universal confirmed to the Associated Press that the movie will be rated R. And uh, some articles, the MPA hasn't put out the uh, clarifications for why it's been rated R yet, but uh, some articles have confirmed that it is uh, rated R for some sexuality, Ooh. nudity, Ooh. and language. Oh, that's not so, a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, registered sex haver, J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, here, <laughs> apparently. Uh, it's going to be Nolan's first rated R movie since Insomnia and only his third rated R movie in his entire career. So, it's got this Insomnia and Memento. Um, Was Following not rated R? Did, did Following get a rating uh, from, the, from the MPAA? Ooh, good. Uh, oh, then that, that's right. Then it probably is his fourth one then. Cause if, 
it wasn't for a rating, it probably would have gotten rated R. I think they said the F word a couple times. Well, just a few. Just a few. Yeah, yeah just a couple, <laughs> you know, for most of its short running time. That makes it, yeah, so four, four of them then. And apparently, because of, you know, the whole thing shot on IMAX, uh, the prints for this bad boy are 11 miles long Ooh. per print, and they weigh 600 pounds. And Nolan has said that the optimal way to view this is in IMAX 70 millimeter. And there's only like a handful of theaters that do that in the entire country. Who says film uh, is dead? So, mm. so, yeah, there we go. He's it's it is rapidly approaching. And it is, of course, he's he's doing it big. Rated R three hours long, miles and miles of print. Sounds um, sounds very much. We're getting the maximal experience here. Yes. very, And we'll, that will tie much more into what the movie we're talking about tonight too but uh that is that is it i also we've been getting a lot of our news uh, a lot of news sites have been aggregating articles and sound bites from this total film interview that christopher nolan gave about the movie and it is pretty hard to get a physical copy of that if you were in america i tried buying it uh the other night and usa is so patriotic and american that it thought that i was uh trying to fraud myself when i bought something from across the pond <laughs> so i ended up just buying a apple news plus subscription and i got the digital copy of it here and so far i haven't seen anything new that we have not covered yet so far but i will be reading that and if we see anything else we will let you guys know but the news continues apace for this movie so far yeah and that variety article was relatively brief but there was a lot packed in there and yeah. Near the end, yeah. one of the things that stood out to me was the article said large format theaters are also essential to experience the sound design of the film. And so the the buzz here yeah. is about the Trinity test and the sound for that. And variety rights might blow the roof off theaters. So <laughs> I'm interested to see how that is, That's especially exciting. having experienced the launch sequence watching interstellar and how oh, that literally shook everything so i wonder if we're gonna be blown through the, the walls <laughs> watching this thing so yeah just more it's the the drip the slow drip has become a, an avalanche it feels like and things are still going and yeah can't wait to get those tickets yeah very excited we will hopefully i'm expecting an email like tomorrow or hopefully soon. I'm half expecting know. it to come in while we're recording this, you know, in dead of night. Uh, probably. Yeah. We'll be okay. We'll get it. <laughs> Good old evening, like a like a 4 p.m. Friday news dump. That's what it's going to be like. <laughs> right at dusk, past dusk, middle of the night. <laughs> but no one's watching. Yes. But other than that, Oppenheimer's on the way. Truly is. But in the meantime, what are we reading or watching i think it's mostly this in this case watching to pass the time until then yeah um i've got a few things uh i finally finished the oc this week taylor and i finally wrapped that up all four seasons of it are available on max the artist formerly known as hbo max um <laughs> and a lot of people didn't really like the fourth it's fun like watching stuff that i that came out years ago now and then going back and reading reviews of it at the time because it just wasn't on my radar when I was 13, 14 years old. And looking back, a lot of people did not really like that fourth season, uh, which I can understand, but I enjoyed it just because of its 
it was like you let the riders loose and you know it's like hey we're leaving do whatever idea you want and it was just like one bonkers thing after another and it was a lot of fun i also have been playing uh, legend of zelda tears of the kingdom on nintendo switch don't really want to look at the stats for how many hours i've logged <laughs> on that thing so far but it's i think i read it's like you got to play for 80 hours to beat the main quest in the thing and i have definitely not put in half of that yet but it's i like to just explore around and you know you can do it you can either like go and forage and pick little mushrooms and berries or (laughs) actually build weapons and start to go forth on the main quest but it's kind of like if you took the crafting aspect of animal crossing and then combined it with the open world stuff of breath of the wild I do not possess the engineering brain necessary to create some of the behemoths that I have seen on TikTok and YouTube of like what people have been creating with this thing, but it's really cool to watch. Um, but it's just fun to play, fun to explore. Trying to take my time with it since you can explore a lot with it. Um, but the main thing that I wanted to talk about was uh, I got to see a 35 millimeter print of David Lynch's The Straight Story at the Texas theater this past weekend. I went to go see that with our friend Drew and straight story is a Disney movie rated G made by David Lynch, uh, which you may think that is, uh, yeah, you may be like, that's weird. Uh, And he has also said that it is his quote, most experienced experimental film of his entire career. And watching it, you can kind of like, there's the, the Angelo, uh, Battlementi, I think is how you say his name, uh, score with the piano, and it sounds a lot like the Twin Peaks score. And there's kind of this moment where you you kind of wonder what's going to happen next, where it can kind of go surreal and creepy at any given moment, but it doesn't. Uh, so there's always that underlying current. But it's uh, the plot of this movie is a uh, 70-something-year-old man in Iowa. He has a bad fall and finds out that he um just he's got bad hips his eyes sights are going his uh he was pre-diabetic and now he's basically diabetic um but he's a he's a good old farmer boy who uh doesn't want to go out on anyone's terms except his own so he refuses medical treatment and just accepts like i'm i'm getting old and i'm probably gonna die soon um but then right after that happens he finds out that his brother who he has not spoken to in 10 years just recently suffered a stroke. And so he realizes that he might not have that much longer to live either. And so in order to make things right and patch things up with him, he decides to go on a road trip to go see his brother, except because his eyesight is so bad, they took his license away from him. So he can't drive a car. So what he does is he decides to ride his John Deere riding lawnmower from Iowa to Wisconsin by himself and goes that whole way and meets his brother and so along the way he stops and camps and meets people and gets people to help him repair the tractor and all this other stuff and so it's kind of a a road trip hangout slice of life type movie um that could very easily be um like a hokey look at us we're all gonna get along type movie because it's a disney you know made by disney kind of highlighting the um, the more sentimental sides and it is very sentimental. What well, I think one of the things people get wrong with David Lynch when they try to describe other things as, you know, quote David Lynchian is they're just like, Oh, this is so weird and wild. Isn't that kooky? Except there's 
incredibly earnest moments in all of David Lynch's movies and especially in Twin Peaks, but you know, like Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, a lot of that has some really earnest ideas behind it, which this one does too. And really at the heart of it is just trying to, to find community and to find forgiveness at the end of it. And a lot of it's really funny. It's got a beautiful score. I was lucky enough to see that 35 millimeter print of it at the theater for the David Lynch retrospective that Texas theater is doing. Um, but if you want to catch that, that is actually on Disney plus, uh, right now. Um, hopefully they don't remove it now that they've announced that they're going to get rid of some stuff, but, um, just a really, really beautiful moving movie, especially the last couple of minutes. Just if, if you've never seen this movie and if maybe you've been thinking, uh, that you wanted to try out some David Lynch. I think that's a good entry point to it. Just very, very good, happy, left me feeling good about humanity at the end of it, which is nice. Well, that sounds just like me. Haven't seen it. Need a bit of a Lynch entry point, I suppose. I really don't think I've seen any David Lynch. I don't know if that's a, a shock to say, but... <laughs> I had a film professor that showed us Blue Velvet, and that was my first entry point, and that was a uh, bit of a shock to the system. But uh, well, given my impression good. and and I what enjoy, I know, enjoyed it. But of the Lynch subject matter, that most of them are a shock to the system. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But for me, uh, with what I've been doing, it's it's really a question of what haven't I been watching? I've just been on quite a tear of just watching movies left and right. So hey, I finally watched, well, I'm going to say finally, uh, but it, Air got put on Amazon Prime. So I watched that. It was pretty great. Then that got me in the mood to watch Space Jam, which I haven't watched in probably decades, which it's uh, not good, but the nostalgia was still pretty nice. And that's, yeah, that's how I feel about that one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it looks like a... <laughs> A bit of a masterpiece compared to Space Jam: A New Legacy, which I also mm-hmm. watched next in. Yes. My God, mm-hmm. it was awful. And we'll leave it at that. And uh, the month of May having just wrapped up, I got a couple of Star Wars watches in. Watched Revenge of the Sith and also Return of the Jedi before the month ran out. Since I got Revenge of the Sith on 4K, and I don't actually have a 4K player yet, <laughs> but I'm. Hey, Running to get one, yeah, but uh, it's the aspirational part that counts. I'm going to manifest it into being, but the 4K came with a Blu-ray, so I was able to watch that. And I also watched Return of the Jedi, of course, for the 40th anniversary. The specialized edition, that's the one for me. Uh, but the thing I'm thinking about most right now is the next Spider-Man movie across the Spider-Verse. So today just before I go see the next movie in IMAX tomorrow, I watched Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and just, man, what a great movie that is. Just, it's one of the most lush, beautiful, amazing visually movies I've ever seen. Like how cool is it? I love the animation of that one. Yeah. And everything else about it is great too. Just everything. I just don't know what there really is to say at this point that hasn't been said. It's absolutely incredible. And it sounds like the buzz for the sequel is just as strong and if they manage to pull off the trick a second time man i'm you know hopefully it lives up to that hype but i'll be seeing that tomorrow at the bullock i get another visit there was just there for interstellar (laughs) and the end of april and i go there tomorrow and then we'll we're planning to be there for oppenheimer so 
practically living there these days, which is not a bad place to be. But that's about my little run through my recap of, of things. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're putting it off a little bit. <laughs> but we, gotta, we must we gotta get to the, gotta get to the main event for this. We've this got thing. to. I feel like there's, there's one thing we, we read one thing for this episode that we both really enjoyed. And then we watched one thing that we can kind of take or leave. But uh, so this week we are talking about forgotten voices of Dunkirk, uh, which is an oral history of the Dunkirk evacuation, which is edited by Joshua Levine, Levine, uh, Levine, maybe we'll when I think about it, I think so. We'll go with Levine. Let's do it. Joshua Levine. And then we are also going to be talking about Ryan's daughter, which is David Lean's story of a, an Irish woman getting involved with a British officer. Um, and so, yeah. Why did we choose these? Well, Forgotten Voices of Dunkirk is, I think if you listen to the title, it's a bit self-evident. Being an oral history of the, the battle uh, and the evacuation, it served as at least one of the influences on the actual history of Christopher Nolan's film. He read the book and Joshua Levine was a historical consultant on the film as well. So made sense to do this one. And of course it was uh, talked about in the Nolan variations just a little bit in passing. And Ryan's daughter was mentioned in the Nolan variations as well uh, with Tom Schoen making some parallels and connections to Chris Nolan doing some David Lean things with all the epicness and everything. At one point in the book, he did talk about Nolan's run of films, just kind of being hit after hit after hit, whether it's critically or in terms of box office. And I think he used David Lean as a bit of a contrast point, bringing up how David Lean was on this run in his career of Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, and then Dr. Zhivago, and then all big hits, massive, massive, like epic scale. And then he tried to do the same thing with Ryan's daughter, and it flopped hard with critics. Did fine at the box office, but the critical reaction was enough to get him out of filmmaking for 14 years until his comeback, basically, with a passage to India. So kind of the vibe there was, could Nolan at some point ever hit this kind of snag? or held it up to show kind of what an amazing run Nolan is on within the studio system without really having a, a flop ever, somehow, seemingly. And then, of course, uh, Ryan's Daughter was also one of the films that Nolan screened for the cast and crew ahead of making Dunkirk. Typically, in the films leading up to this, he showed maybe just one movie, but ahead of Dunkirk, he showed about 11 or just a whole lot of movies. And Ryan's daughter was one of them. And I actually have a question for you, Jake. It, normally, we don't we haven't really talked about this. But when we were deciding the materials list for the podcast, we were discussing <laughs> this and trying to decide which movie since there were so many to pick from. And right. I, I can't remember what suggestion I had, but uh, you put out Ryan's daughter and I maybe pushed a tiny bit for it. It wasn't uh, much of a conversation, uh, but I, let me, yeah, let me but I see the, the doc we had. Let me pull that up here. Uh, yeah. But my question for you, 
was what about this stood out to you that made it uh, that you thought this should be the choice for this episode? I think this is an interesting contrast point for Dunkirk, the finished film, because I, I think Nolan liked this movie. I think that he, uh, like, obviously he, he screened it for the cast and crew. So he wanted them to kind of see what this movie achieves, especially with regards to the way that it films beaches and the way that it, the inventive ways that, you know, they got the camera crew and the, the shots in the water, especially in that storm scene where they're trying to get the gun and ammo crate there in the second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. And just the, the sheer sweeping motion of it. Like the first shot of the movie is, you know, from up above and you just see like little dots on the beach, little people walking. And so the very evocative uh, later with Dunkirk and the shots from the air with Tom Hardy in the plane. And then just the, the scope of everything with land, sea and air um, and the way that those three aspects are employed uh, for the evacuation. But I think this is the movie that he, how do I say this? The reception to this movie is the thing that he wanted to avoid, I think is what he was terrified of with Dunkirk, which is interesting because he already kind of talked a little bit about that with the way that the prestige was received initially in its open weekend. Right. Or how it was tracking. Um, yeah, and so he was kind of worried, like, oh, did I have my my David Lean 1970 moment with this movie? And then just, you know, kind of saying, like, oh, you can't worry about it. You got to keep moving, and maybe history will reassess it or whatever. And Prestige still is kind of one of we saw this week with Letterboxd, uh, Million Watch Club. Prestige is still one of his least seen movies, which I think is a shame because it's I think it's one of his best. But On a relative scale, um, it still does have yeah, 960-something yeah. thousand watches on letterboxed but yeah so yeah. it's it's close up there but yeah i think uh just the sheer scope of it was what he was was trying to do but also the way that this movie is there's the the, the grand camera movements and the scope of everything but it's also the heart of it is kind of like a madame bovary type story of adultery and this one love triangle thing at the center of it and then it doesn't expand its scope into a broader plot until the second half of the movie so I think that it's, it's an interesting point to where an example of what he could have, like where he could have gone. Um, right. Instead of making it, cause there are very smaller intimate moments for Dunkirk and the way that it's focused on just a handful of pockets of people. And then, but I think by doing that, it focuses on the sheer will of these people as it relates to the whole event. And I don't really think that this movie for Ryan's daughter, the small events, I don't really think make up for what the, or the, I don't think the small character moments and everything relate too much to the whole event. I think there's kind of two boring things going on here, but sure. um, we can get more to that later, yeah. but it's, I don't know. I wanted to like it. This is also my first David Lean movie. I haven't seen any of his other stuff. So, oh my, um, I've heard all of his other stuff is great. But like, just the like that storm scene is I thought was really great and was shot really well. Also, yes. feels like it came out of a, a different movie. <laughs> but I think the whole thing is shot really well. It looks beautiful. Like I yeah. right off the bat, it was like, oh, that's County Clare, Ireland. Like I've I've been there. I missed that place. That's pretty cool. And then the title card comes up and you start to see the cliffs of more and I was like, Oh man, this looks beautiful. And 
exactly the way I remember it when I went to Ireland a couple of years ago. So it looks great. It looks beautiful and a lot of technical prowess there for it, uh, which def- Nolan definitely emulates for Dunkirk, but I don't really, we can get into the plot with all of it later, but <laughs> just the the story, I don't think rises to the occasion of the, the way that it's presented, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, we'll get a little bit more into that and I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts as well, but I think we are going to, uh, somewhat briefly discuss the book forgotten voices of dunkirk so yeah. herald this with our usual spoiler alert reminder although it feels a bit weird saying that for this historical event and for the this 53 year old movie so anyway spoiler yeah. alert, i guess if you don't know how world war ii went number one yeah. and if you don't know especially after we already <laughs> talked about it a little bit how brian Sauter is gonna go yeah but let's let's go forgotten voices of dunkirk all right it is as we said an oral history of the evacuation it actually covers from the beginning of world war ii and the period of the phony war where war was declared british soldiers were shipped over to europe and to france and belgium and nothing really happened for the end of 1939 and then early 1940 uh, and then the Germans finally began moving with their blitzkrieg and started carving everybody up and then the British retreated had a fighting retreat and had to figure out how to get their their army out of France and back home so that they weren't decimated or taken prisoner and that they actually had something to work with so it covers all of that and a little bit too of the period after everyone got home and also a sort of brief focus on the sinking of a passenger liner, the, oh crud, I should have, uh, is it the Lancastria is the name of the ship? Which apparently is the worst maritime disaster in British history. Um, some soldiers got were getting out on this cruise liner. Uh, I think, I think it, so. Yeah. It set out from Normandy, the Normandy area, and... It was a, you know, had civilians on it too, but the the Germans torpedoed it and sank it, and it was a death toll of thirty five hundred. So, a bit more wide scope than you might think of if you're just thinking of what the film Dunkirk covers. But mm-hmm. it was the Lancastria. Lancastria, good good Lancastria, job yeah. of my memory. I'm not getting too old yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's just about what the book's about, and it just. It's an oral history. It, uh, it takes audio recordings that the Imperial War Museum in Britain has. And uh, Joshua Levine transcribed them and arranged them. Edit. He's credited as the editor and put these things into a narrative. So first question for you, Jake. Have you read this before? I'm going to guess guess no. And what do you think of it? I had not read it before. Um, I actually... Before the movie came out in 2017, I did not really know anything about this evacuation. My uh, World War II knowledge was solely American based. Right. So I could tell it. Yeah. Could tell you everything you wanted to know about Pearl Harbor because we lived there for (laughs) so long. But um, and knew, you know, D-Day, all that stuff. But um, this was a really good eye opener to 
the movie explained a little bit of it, but this was much more of an eye opener about what actually happened and what went down. And just, I didn't really hear that much about it. And apparently Nolan and a lot of other people didn't know a lot about it either. Uh, even though it's a big source of national pride, but not a lot of the, the details got passed on too much, which is the point of the book series and the oral histories that Josh Levine, Levine does. But no, I was just impressed. I'm always impressed by oral histories in general, just the from a production standpoint of just getting them together and what do you leave in, what do you leave out, how do you order it, how can you piece together like 10 different interviews to form one narrative that all just fascinates me. Um, so just from a sheer production standpoint, this thing is really interesting. Um, right. But what also really stood out to me too was just the – up until you get to the evacuation and the stuff that makes Dunkirk so special as a historical event, a lot of it is the same stuff that you hear about pretty much every war. You know, it's young men saying, oh man, we're, I'm going to dress up and be a soldier. I'm going to go to war and I'm going to fight and it's going to be great. And then when the time comes, uh, you know, a lot of people suddenly, oh, I have bone spurs or oh, I've, I'm sick and <laughs> I've never been sick before. Or even with you go when you go to war, you know, you don't think anything's really going to happen to you. And then suddenly it does. And it's that's the stories we've been hearing about stuff like that for centuries, really, for just young men when they enter. Um, but I re also read this over Memorial Day weekend, um, and it was a very potent read for that weekend just reading that and reading the the sacrifices that a lot of people made just to get people off of this beach and at the same time and, that the evacuation actually happened uh, end of may yeah. into early june 1940 yeah and I, when i saw the data i was like oh that tracks a lot with this episode right now um and then i was also struck by the the you know the classic british understatement with everything <laughs> Where there was one guy, what was the quote? Let me find my spot here. Yeah, plenty of great, just plenty of so stuff in here. Just, um, just you know, what one soldier talking about how they they finally made it to the beach after landing, after coming in, parachuting in, and they're like, we ran uh, forty miles and ran or walked forty miles in sixteen hours, so we were a bit tired. <laughs> or the. Um, the beginning of it, once the some of the the soldiers got the news that they were having to go in to get people out and said our officer said we had a job and we might not be coming back uh, and so that cheered us up to no end <laughs> uh, but then also i was just really struck by the that understated humor the very british humor combined with a real big sense of pride in one's country and in one's army uh with the almost a stoicism mindset too especially with one guy where he was like i just i made up my mind i was going home i couldn't bear to not go home my wife was pregnant and i told myself that i was going to make it home to see my child and then just the the they referenced the dunkirk spirit a lot towards the end with the actual evacuation of getting people out um where the guy on the boat is already getting weighed down and he was like, come on, I can take one more. Give me one more. Like, let me just get more people off. And just was very, very moving. Uh, and was especially, like I said, very moving to read, especially over Memorial Day weekend, especially about an event that, like I said, I hadn't really learned too much about, especially in school. And so it's good that we have stuff like this to, 
further the knowledge. Apparently, it's a full. You were telling me it's a full series of like forgotten voices of different battles and different events. Yeah. So it's glad glad that we have that, and we have historians to piece together all these things. Yeah, yeah, and with you mentioning the the Britishness of it, the the part that sticks out to me, and I think is is shown in the film, is how orderly the evacuation was described as being with everyone just queuing up on the beaches and it's kind of like the epitome of the the stiff upper lip quite that and quite a few other things in the book that that stereotype of of the brits that would that would not happen if that was america but speaking of quotes uh there was one that was i think a a private was they're starting the retreat says the officer gave the order says it was every man for himself and then this person says i asked him what he meant he said you can do what you like the thing is to get away no one's in charge i said really yes he said (laughs) (laughs) just the idea of wait a minute what do we do no i can actually do whatever um and so yeah just um the orderliness and the strict adherence to the chain of command not that you know, like with my experience of American military stories that they don't, but there's the distinct Americanness of it. You have a more individual flair to things with certain units and people. So I definitely really felt that. And there's quite a few times with a lot of different people's stories in this book where they were talking about, you know, the officers had to some officers trying to get to the front of the line in a few instances and they were roundly criticized and beaten back by their superiors and you're an officer you got to wait here you got to make sure your men get off and mm-hmm. yeah and then yeah. even when they did get out it was like you need to go over here because they don't have an officer they need someone to lead them and tell them what to do you need to get your shit together exactly exactly <laughs> yeah so uh, just the things like that yeah definitely very british and also touching on what you said about the composition of it, just reading it, it really came through the importance of the editing and the juxtaposition of the different stories. Levine did some really great work here. I haven't really read too many other book length oral histories to compare it to, but everything felt coherent and flowed really well. And I kind of just think you can tie a thread between just the idea of that with editing and putting things together and then the editing of Dunkirk in terms of how important the structure is to Nolan's film because, uh, and Tom Schoen touches on this and Nolan variations by saying what like a standard cross cut film does not give you versus mm-hmm. Nolan's yeah, yeah. structure of the three timelines and how he weaves them together is the sense of tension. And so right. Tom Schoen's quote is by putting Tommy, the generic quote unquote main character and his men in almost constant peril, Nolan turns survival itself into its own achievement. So just the idea of how the structure of both of these pieces of media is kind of inherent to how they achieve their aims. The, the form follows the function was very interesting to me. Yeah. And that reminds me too, of a thought I had while reading this, I got a lot of flashbacks to, uh, band of brothers actually and the way that that was presented Mm -hmm. with some episodes where you get the talking head of the actual people who were there and then it morphs into the actors portraying that episode 
And I feel like that's the easy way to do this. If he really wanted to just straight adapt this book, you know, he could have mm-hmm. just gotten the remaining people who were still alive and then got people to portray them in a movie and then do the events for that. But I think that's the the easy way out for that. And so I'm glad that he found a way to to Nolanize it uh, a little bit yeah. and tell, tell it in a way that really only he could write for a for a thing with this. Um, yeah, that's actually one of the I, things I noted as well in terms of a contrast is that the film focuses on just kind of a collective and I don't think there's really any named characters. No one gets a name in it or if they do, there's very few, but the book, you know, every time it switches narrators, they names them and their unit and everything. So it's a collective tale from the book made up of some very specifically individual experiences. So my note was, you know, Nolan kind of anonymizes it and Levine kind of, individualizes or I maybe not humanizes it because you still get the human element from the Nolan film, uh, I think, mm-hmm. but uh, just the, how you can tell the same story, but with the different methods and right. Still having that, I guess what the thesis of our discussions on the evacuation might be is Nolan's quote from, from Tom Schoen's book is, and that we've mentioned before, I think in talking about the dark Knight was, the quote is it's not about individual heroics it's about a community full of heroism so the literal dunkirk spirit everyone coming together to uh, military ships navy ships and the little boats alike going just the whole country kind of going to get the army back and, and bring them all home and another thing nolan said was from the, the tom Schoen book uh, about like the different individual perspectives is um you know, he said there's four hundred thousand people on the beach you can find a lot of different experiences and perspectives. And he said that was very much the approach we took in the film to try and suggest to the audience that they're seeing certain aspects of the thing, but there are myriad other stories. And so uh, reviewing that quote from him, it's that's what an oral history is too, because you get the history, but it's filtered through strictly the individual lenses that you pull for it. Um, you can build a narrative with that, but there are definitely, like Nolan said, myriad other stories that can, they can either corroborate or contradict each other and even build a, you can even build a different story entirely if you like. And uh, Levine actually does that in the book sometimes with the different perspectives. Like when they got to France, there's some soldiers who were like, the French were awesome and amazing and friendly. And there was a couple other people who were like, they sucked and they hated us and it was terrible. So trying to it's kind of that old subjective experiences versus the objective reality we've talked about with, with Nolan's yeah, work before. Yeah. So I think it was really cool while reading the book to see the specific bits um, that Nolan took and put into the movie, mm-hmm. just little yeah. moments or things. And then the movie itself obviously doesn't have room to tell all those stories and it, it's not trying to, but it does prove Nolan's point on the scale of a film because you can put certain things into it, certain stories and viewpoints but so many are going to get left out just by the nature of the thing in a couple hours runtime that you have so that's something we can keep in mind for this and also as we get closer to oppenheimer considering that's another historical film that nolan's doing so in the end it's it's uh it's all about the pov it's not just going back to the quote that nolan had again in tom sean's book about like it's where you put the camera the most the most important thing but also with POV about from whose perspective are you telling the story? And I think that was one of the biggest things that I took from the book. It's it's all about that perspective of who's telling the story and the voices from history. Who, who are we 
uh, relying on to tell the story and who are we listening to. Yeah, that's always the the interesting part with his his movies is you never kind of really know what type of POV you're going to get, which is always nice. Yeah, yeah. And I guess speaking about just the like the little bits and stuff he took and put into his movie, I had just a, a little bit of a short list of, of cool things, like just some little obvious things like the, the Germans dropping the leaflets onto the the soldiers. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, probably, you know, I don't know if my dad ever saw Dunkirk, but he would lo- love that. That was one of the things he was involved in, PSYOPs, and when he was in the Air Force. Um, and then talking about, there was one person's story about a couple of, talked about a couple of dozen men committed suicide by running into the sea while they were waiting for evacuation, just being under that terrific strain. And there's, I actually had to check this. I was like, did there's a scene of that in Dunkirk, isn't there? And there is a moment where there's a soldier who just walks into the uh, into the ocean and dies that way. They, they're just sitting on the beach and watch this guy just walk into the sea. And then, of course, the arrival back in England and everyone treating them like heroes. And uh, I guess that was another one of the other big points, the defeat that feels like a victory. And it kind of seems like like a pure Nolan thing you know, to take this one thing you think is this and actually we're going to look at it like this. And it even reminded me just based on that phrase alone, a successful failure made me think of Apollo 13 and how, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like just a distinctly kind of a, well, not distinctly American, but maybe more of being like the top dog in the world at the time, the being like the, the empire in charge of things, because there were a few quotes in the book about, some folks at home uh, in England talking about Dunkirk didn't seem like a disaster. Our feeling was after everyone got back, oh, we're, we're on our own now. We'll be fine because, you know, we don't need anybody else. Kind of that exceptionalism. And also, like, we didn't think it was a defeat because the British Army wasn't used to losing. And also talking, someone was talking about a, yeah, a BBC yeah. report on the radio that the oppression they gave the quote was the British were advancing backwards and the Germans were retreating forwards. <laughs> so, um, I just got distinctly like American vibes of like, this is how we can get sold things to being the most powerful mil- at least militarily country in the world right now. How like one, though right. we can't, we always have to find some way to save face and never admit defeat or any, that any, we did anything wrong or lost or whatever so um, the stakes in this case i think uh, at least given the historical context of you know what the whole nazi deal was uh <laughs> stakes were a lot higher and more meaningful uh in in my yeah. view but that was pretty uh pretty telling <laughs> but maybe the last thing or two i wanted to say was um uh, Levine has a he has little introductions in the chapters to give historical context to what's going on so that some of the soldier stories make a little more sense and he yeah. does mention Churchill in passing and kind of how how his leadership was one of the things that also made the evacuation feel like a huge win and Levine wrote that uh, such optimism in the face of grim reality was skillfully fostered by Winston Churchill 
If the essence of leadership in bleak times is the ability to dull the rational faculty and to substitute enthusiasm for it, then Churchill was a leader of true genius. His attitude of determined calm would rally the nation across the darkest days as Britain's immediate future was determined in her skies. And I just think uh, Nolan juxtaposed that very well at the end of Dunkirk with Tommy reading Churchill's speech over the final shots of retreat and, you know, Tom Hardy's pilot surrendering on the beach and these images of defeat and going back and going home. But you've got Churchill's words being read over everything. So and the swelling inspirational music. So I thought that was a good way to translate that concept from uh, the book's idea of it and getting that into the movie. So that was pretty cool. And last but not least, I guess, uh, is uh, maybe the most fascinating thing that I found out through this book was the story of Charles Lightoller, who was the uh, in charge of one of the the boats that went across and one of the little ships and they didn't have a story from him in this world history but they had someone who was on the boat with him named gerald ashcroft i think and number one this man was kind of the basis for mark rylance's character in the movie nolan took some elements and from charles lightoller and put them on to Mark Rylance's character, including one of the pivotal moments where the the German Stuka is bearing down on their boat and they're able to turn at the last second. Um, that actually happened with Charles Lightoller commanding the Sundowner was the name of the boat. And he was able to know that, uh, like know the exact moment to, to turn the boat one way or the other, because when the Stukas were about to fire their machine guns, the pilots had to slightly angle the the plane up to fire. And so they had to take their eyes off the target so they wouldn't know where they were. And so Nolan directly took that and put that in to the movie, including the reason that both the real life person and the movie person knew these things is because they had sons who served in the military and also died. So... I just thought that was really amazing. And then the other cool fact about Charles Lightoller is that in addition to having this like little part of this huge piece of history, he was also the second officer on board the Titanic. And according to Wikipedia, uh, the most senior member of the crew to survive the disaster. He was in charge of loading passengers in the lifeboats and strictly enforced the women and children rule. So just man, oh, wow. the life this guy had. What a, how cool. What a life. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. So not only did we just, you know, learn about Dunkirk, we learned another little piece of history. So just great, great book, great stories. Um, really glad we got to, to delve into that. There's so much like there's so much more, like you said, this the like emotional stories that people can tell of war and some of the absurdities and the humor you find in it in some of the weirdest most awful moments that like because you either have to or there's nothing else for you to do it's, it's wild but i think now uh we've got to do it we've got to talk about ryan's daughter so you want to intro that for us jake yeah uh <laughs> ryan's daughter is a 1970 film directed by david lean starring uh, our boy robert mitchum 
Yes, he's back uh, again. Back. Uh, also kind of doing the, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> uh, it's also starring Trevor Howard uh, and Sarah Miles. It is in color, shot in 65 millimeter, and is 200 minutes long. Uh, every single one of them. Yes. The brief IMDb summary uh, set in the wake of the 1916 Easter Rising, a married woman in a small Irish village has an affair with a troubled British officer. And you know what? That's it's really kind of what happens. That's and it took pretty three much hours it. to tell the story. There's some subterfuge <laughs> with uh, the titular Ryan. Rosie Ryan is Ryan's daughter. Uh, but there's some some intrigue with him tipping off the British about different things. Uh, but that's really secondary to the the love triangle thing here. Although um, the village eventually, eventually does think that Rosie's the informer and not her yes. father. And that's the, because she I is kept sleeping with the British officer. Yes. Yeah. When I kept watching it, I was like, why is this called Ryan's? Like, why are we centering him? You know? Exactly. <laughs> and then the, the end part, I was like, oh, that's why. That sucks. Sucks for that family. Mm-hmm. Um, the, <laughs> when you texted me the screenshot of how you watched it, I think how Amazon Prime described it as like bleak, sad, love triangle. I was like, that's great. Going for and the hard sell. Yeah. The yeah, the first half of it, I was like, this is not great, but I don't think it's bleak. And then the final act happens and you're just left not feeling great about yourself. Um not one bit. But I am curious though. So I watched this, I ordered a DVD copy of this a long time ago when we were plotting out what we were gonna watch. And it is a two disc thing. Uh, and like the first half is on the first disc. Second half is on the second disc. And it came with the overture and the intermission and the end closing score credit thing. Did the streaming version have that for you? Oh, they had just the intermission. And I'm not, I'm not entirely happy about that. Now that you say that, because I was wondering, <laughs> wait a minute, we have the intermission. Where's the, the untracked and uh Yeah. Or not the untracked. Yeah, the untracked had... is the between. Uh, where yeah, where's the opening? Because I have seen a couple of David Leighton films before, Bridge on the River Kwai, and Lawrence of Arabia, which uh, I've extolled the virtues of many times before on this podcast. So I was like, huh, that's a little weird. So, damn it, Amazon, God. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I mean, if you want to borrow my copy of it, by all means, um, certainly. <laughs> Um, so this is, a, yeah, we've never, both of us have never seen this before. I got to tell you the, what you were talking about earlier, the, yeah. you know, the, the epic cinematography and everything that is par for the course. I can definitely right. say that meets the standard and the expectation. And, uh, I completely agree that that was my favorite part of this movie. For sure, um, yeah, because it, it won the stunning. Oscar that year for cinematography. Well deserved, easily. Yeah, yes, yeah. But the other one, it won not so much. But we'll probably come to that at some point. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess in terms of why we're actually talking about it, um, yes, and that you already touched yeah. on it. Definitely, absolutely, see the influence of this on Dunkirk, just solely on a technical level. I, I didn't really get anything from this in terms of story or character. And so with the no, reason you I'd, said you but, picked it, I think Nolan definitely succeeded uh, <laughs> in yeah. avoiding the the pitfall. Yeah. 
I got a brief moment when when the whole village and the whole community is banding together with the the rebels to find the crate of of ammo and guns in the water during the storm. And like that was the one moment where the village was actually coming together for a common good instead of trying to stone someone or trying to publicly shame someone. I thought that was yes. uh, good. And that was an actual good communal theme like Dunkirk has a bunch of people coming together for one thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not a lot of thematic similarities here. Uh, not a lot of character or any other similarities. But yeah, just the, the way that it, I think Tom Schoen talks about continuing the, like with Interstellar, with a, a maximalist film with minimalist, not emotions because it's big emotions, but you know what I mean? Like it's a smaller scale human story, but yeah. large. And that's how this, that's how Interstellar is. That's how Dunkirk is. And so I think, like we said earlier, he was worried that, you know, can I do this while also being this big grand scale, big budget movie, but also tell the story of these couple, uh, three separate stories of these three men that are really trying their hardest to do something for the country because basically this movie is like i i don't like to be i don't like to look to film or art for like moral instruction right like if films can be about bad people books can be about terrible people and you can still get some artistic merit from them Mm -hmm. I don't really know what the point of this movie is other than to show a adulterous relationship about basically about how bad sex ruined this woman's life. Apparently I don't know. Yeah. What the, like, <laughs> like she thought her sex life with her husband who was perfectly fine. He's a school teacher. He's providing a good for the village. He is Robert. He looks like Robert Mitchum. Wonderful, like, wonderful man by all accounts. He just doesn't like to to have sex too often. Apparently, well, he's just also uh, a lot that, older, and that worries her. Yeah, just a, he's just a he's just a man. What do you want from him? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did think it was funny. Like the a lot of the the reviews that I read for this, the mostly the Pauline Kale one and the Roger Ebert ones, talked about how obvious the symbolism is in this movie, and I picked up on that pretty much right away like the two the only two sex scenes in this movie the way that they're juxtaposed like the the wedding night sex scene with robert mitchum is very constrained and they're indoors and people are running up to the house because they're like oh they're married they're gonna they're doing it yeah um and it's very they're both nervous they're both um it's very awkward i don't know very awkward uh she's in like a nightgown fully clothed most of the time and all that but like it's like he loves her and like just wants to you know be with her whereas the other scene when she first kisses the british officer is very just like (laughs) primal very like the people are running away from the house because people are outside and they're alone and it's very lustful and yeah. everything just like an animal instinct almost like a it's like a romance novel like you're that yeah, stereotypical a, idea of it yeah when i was watching this I was like i was like if this wasn't for the cinematography and the the director attached to it this is a dime store like nothing against dime store romance novels or anything like i love genre stuff but like yeah that's what this is just with better camera work basically and then when they finally do actually have sex it's out in the woods 
So it's nature. So it's natural. They're giving into their, you know, <laughs> their natural urges. She's actually naked out here for that one. And, and yeah. they're free to do whatever. It's cutting the uh, different then, scenes of nature. It, you mentioned the Ebert review and he's like, yeah, the, I, I read that one as well. And he's it like, cuts to the pollen and it yeah, the dandelion yeah. and the blows away and it falls in the lake, of course. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, fun fact about that scene though. Apparently what's the guy's name that plays the major Christopher Jones, Christopher Jones. Apparently yes. they had to drug him to do that scene. According to from folk to lore from, about this movie, from what I read about it, they didn't have to drug him. They just did it because Sarah Miles, who played Rosie Ryan, did not. They did not like each other at all. And apparently, it was Robert Mitchum's idea to maybe do that. And so she did. And yeah, he's kind of catatonic in that scene as well as kind of for the rest of the movie. Again, I'm. I mean, like I have a took a few quite a few quotes from Ebert's review because it was just so damn good. But his line on Christopher Jones, I wanted to like it so, so much because when he first arrived, I'm like, oh, this guy seems interesting. It was, he wasn't. But uh, Roger Ebert said, Christopher Jones performance, an actor could hardly express less without playing a corpse. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, lo- I love that line. Nailed yeah, because yeah. that's supposed to be the more the crazier scene of the two, right? Um, yeah, but then you know when she comes back, she's wearing red for passion, and it's like I just got flashbacks to discussing symbolism about the Scarlet Letter in high school and everything. Yeah, but also this guy, like we, most times when it's a story like this, you know, like we see a reason for her to want to be with this other person. I don't think the other the British major guy says ten words the entire movie, basically, or gives any indication that yeah that he wants to be with her other than it's a new guy in town and he's dangerous. He's got a scar over his eye cause he's traumatized by the war. Mm-hmm, I did think mm-hmm. that the, the moment when he walks into the bar and they first kiss the way the PTSD stuff is handled initially is really interesting. Yes. And when he's the, trying to, to shoot at the, the Irish revolutionary as well, there's a couple of cuts. There's really, they match so well. And uh, just again, more shows the technical prowess of, of the movie than, anything else but those were really well done i agree yeah but basically yeah they their affair is found out because the Uh, here we go basically the the village idiot i guess is what you're gonna we're gonna call him his name is michael we'll just call him michael because michael Michael finds out but michael is less a character than a plot device to inform everyone about everything that goes on like a magical being of the per like I I thought of Banshees of Inisherin a lot watching this actually because there's a similar character in that movie except he's treated with a lot more humanity mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot more empathy and gets a really good scene uh, with uh, one of the the other women in the movie about that but it's a character trope that's been around for forever and it's a harmful one but apparently one John Mills a best supporting actor oscar for walking around with a limp and acting mentally handicapped and having just Um, the most grotesque prosthetics and it's on his teeth yeah trot yeah yeah just yeah and like this movie was like 1970 wasn't like i don't like applying like today's standards to old movies but that shouldn't have flown back then doesn't fly now but um and even and even apart from that i'm just 
it was more an annoyance to me just the fact that his character yeah. and the the purpose that his character served in the movie um anytime michael showed up i was like great let's just get through this and and then after i was done watching i saw one a supporting actor oscar and i thought well was it trevor howard playing the priest no was it was it tom ryan the, the actor who played tom ryan no is was john mills playing michael okay great yeah. um so that was that was just one of those really cringy academy choices to to do that and i'd rather not yeah. talk about it too much but yes uh, yeah it's there we can and, yeah. we can leave it at that it's a, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. Um, if, you, if you want to watch this movie afterwards you'll see what we mean uh but mm-hmm. no that priest has great scenes with pretty much everyone in the movie and i think brings out the best in in everybody else yes in this movie what else did i take notes on for this one it just feels like glacial you know like i I feel like you could cut so much of this and get to uh, the the actual note that i took was why doesn't this work where it's a at the heart of it it's a small love story love triangle set amidst a historical time period so why doesn't this work for me but something like titanic does where that's a love story set on a historical event Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm I think mostly just because one, that's a Jim Cameron is another one of the most earnest <laughs> filmmakers <laughs> today. Like he's like, yes, you will believe that these two people love each other after only meeting him for, you know, two hours. Yeah. Um, and it centers the, the other man on that one too. And here it's just more about the, I don't know if it's shame. I mean, it shames her definitely for, having a an adulterous relationship but it also doesn't really give you a good reason of why she did it in the first place other than she just wanted some some spice in her life she's got hot pants which, which is why Another she ebert line according according to ebert yeah. yeah which is the whole reason why she gets married in the first place because she's like she's just horny and, and and yeah and and robert mitchell warns her he's like i don't know if i'm gonna make your life any more exciting and she was like yeah we'll see about that and yeah. you know i don't know which not not that it's not wrong to have a horny female lead in your movie, but no. this just wasn't she wasn't anyone I could right. cheer for really. It's not at all. Yeah, because even then, like I don't, she doesn't really have a lot of agency later anyway, and then it all ends in tragedy with the the thing where they think that she's the informant when really it's her dad, and then they get run out of town and. She, what's gonna happen and I just yeah i guess back to the film shouldn't have moral lessons point. i'm just i just was left at the end of it going like that's it like that's all that happened to them in 200 minutes and yeah like it didn't turn the tide of any uh war effort really i mean i guess it did because they found the weapons in the end yeah it turned the for, tide for the wrong for, people <laughs> for the wrong yeah for the wrong people yeah. and it was just like it's not I don't know. <laughs> it it but it it kind of just everything that could go wrong went wrong with the story aspect of it because yeah the yeah the technical highs are really high when it's just we're getting all those sweeping vistas and the scale of everything that's when I was having the best time. Um, I mean, and there yeah. are some good performances too, which are quite enjoyable. And Robert Mitchum is just so chill and understated. So that's mm-hmm. fun, but he also, 
I also thought it was interesting that him and uh, the British officer guy, both of them are played by American actors, and yet I felt like they both felt the most Irish and British, respectively. Yeah, <laughs> Robert mentioned the lack of the lack of Irish accents in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Robert mentioned for sure. Um, actually, Christopher Jones's voice was dubbed. Uh, I, I looked up, so he. Uh, I don't know. That might explain why. Yeah, he doesn't this, talk too much. He, Never mind. He also had a horrible experience making this movie, and this made him quit acting. Apparently, so just a lot of bad juju around oh, this thing. Oh, yeah. Interesting, because I saw he didn't have many credits on on IMDb. I didn't know if that was this was the one that did it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. so just for all the technical achievement and strong acting in in some parts, yeah, I think the thing is none of it connects with the story in any meaningful way. It's just look at this stuff, and that's some. These are some nice pictures, and then here's this soap opera going on in the background yeah. and I found it hard to care really about anybody. So yeah, David lean just, he went for it all, but he just didn't, <laughs> didn't have the right story. I, I think didn't Hebert's work. line of it again, I'm just, I'm just going back to this because what I wrote my letterbox review and then I saw Ebert's review and I was like, this is the exactly, this is everything I'm thinking. Oh, just, it's written much better Same. because he's yeah. brilliant. But uh, his mind was, uh, you know, not every subject is suited to the epic treatment. And then uh, a simple little love triangle on the southwest coast of Ireland simply can't bear the weight of Lean's overachieving. And I think that sums it up pretty well. That was the one I highlighted too. I was also very confused by the score in this movie. Yes, which is a shame because um, Maurice Jarre, uh, I, I wrote a paper on him in college as, uh, you know, that's the token line, right? Um, but I did in, the, in that film music class, I think I mentioned before. And this, like, like the Lawrence of Arabia score is, is rightfully in, regarded as an all-timer. And it was a bit uneven, I would say. Yes. <laughs> and it ends and it almost sounds whimsical. It almost sounds like a, I don't know, a parody of Irish folk music or something. Yeah. Like, there's just like a, you're supposed to be happy as this movie ends when it's just such a downer of an ending. Yeah, there's so much tonal dissonance in in this. It makes it so hard to figure out what's going on. And it kind of, I, I almost in a way feel bad saying it because one, the other two David Lean films I've seen are fantastic. And number two, I also feel feels a little bit bad because knowing how deeply this affect, the critical reaction to this movie affected him and made him quit for a while uh, is it's kind of just, it's really sad to me. So not to just keep heeping things on uh, <laughs> um, kicking somebody <laughs> while they're down, but it, so I, in a way I almost feel a little bit bad saying some of these things, but it, it's, it's definitely misfires. And I know there has been a contemporary reevaluation of it and people are able, I think have found more to like about it. And I don't think that the, absolutely caustic reception uh, especially some of the the meaner reviews are totally right about this like um i I didn't read pauline kale's review Uh, i don't know how mean that one was uh but i read ebert's review and it was a two out of four stars and it seemed pretty fair not not anything excessively awful or not anything excessively damning i suppose It, it plays it straight but 
yeah, it feels weird to say like I, you know, I'm, I feel bad criticizing what I think is at best an extremely average movie, but yeah, there's that in my head, and so just uh, man, man's reach exceeding his his grasp here, it, I think would be a, a case of this what this movie is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Pauline Kale, basically the the crux of that one was that it was. She said colossal and tasteful, but empty, which also is kind of how I felt like great. I'd agree great with environment, that. Yeah. Great lighting, great, but everything technical, great, but just empty in the service of an empty story. So I certainly agree with that. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know if we need to just put in one more good word, though, for for thing I did like that. That storm sequence was absolutely phenomenal. That yes, that, that one, one grabbed my attention after a couple hours of being a bit of a torpor. Yeah, that one made me sit up and notice the execution on that. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, because that's almost pretty much what starts the, not quite what set starts the second act. It's about a little bit a ways into it, but mm-hmm. that's when it really starts to hurdle toward the end, basically. But it's mercifully, a, yeah. I wanted wanted more of, of that style of, of whatever it was. I don't know what movie that is in, but uh, it was great. It's in more of David Lean's pictures. That's what you, yeah. that's why you got to go yeah. watch them. I need, to, I need to watch Lawrence of Arabia. I need to watch uh, River. I've seen River Kwai. I need to see Dr. Vigo. But yeah, like that's that's the juice. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> to, to yeah, yeah, pretty much keep yeah. self-referencing everything we've done on here. Um, yeah. Do you have any other notes? I have a, a couple couple things left, but maybe nearing the, the end of the discussion here. Uh, that is it for me, really. Um, I covered pretty much everything I needed to cover on that one. Sure, yeah. And then the, the last couple things I have uh, is one, maybe a, a through line I kind of saw for, for both the book we read this week and for Ryan's Daughter in regards to we do have a bit of war regarding major dorian's story in ryan's daughter so we kind of see that fine line between bravery and maybe not cowardice but just how you react to being in a wartime environment or just doing something because yeah. you don't have anything yeah. else to do or doing something because that's a way to survive or the only way to do it because major dorian's character ends up in ireland because he was uh, on the front in world war one uh, and he's a war hero. He also walks with a limp. And during the change of command, the officer in charge who's departing is talking to him. And this outgoing officer is saying that he's he uh, got himself to the front because he feels like he wants to go there and kind of see if he can measure up and be a hero or be a man but he's terrified he'll be a coward instead that like his worst fear is getting the shakes and he's asking the major about what it's like and kind of comes up and says with the quote of like i read what you did in the newspapers this major did something apparently very heroic to get injured and, you know that weren't no flash in the pan you'd do the same again i dare say and major dorian replies you'd be wrong so if there's anything I, I took from this really <laughs> to try and really draw any firm story connection, perhaps with Dunkirk, it, it might be that of just the, the experience of war and how people respond to it. 
And I think that's really important to remember going forward. And the other thing that I had was uh, I'm going to ride the Roger Ebert train as far as I can here. Uh, but uh, truly, uh, near the end of his review, he sums it up by saying, I have a friend who says a new David Lean movie is like a new Picasso. It may not be a great Picasso, he says, but by God, it's, it's a Picasso and worth seeing for that reason, if no other. I suppose that's true of Lean and all great directors. Their work is interesting just because they've signed it and the failures help to illuminate the successes. So I think that's a really great quote to end on for me, given Christopher Nolan has reached that status now among other directors that everyone knows by a single name, you know, Spielberg, Scorsese, other contemporaries of Nolan's would be, I would say probably Villeneuve and Chazelle. We can put Chazelle on there, I suppose. Um, you know, Cuaron, Del Toro, all those guys. Uh, Gerwig, as you know, I think you could say too. Uh, just, you know, you got your one, one name directors. So given we're, we're doing this about Christopher Nolan. That's why we're watching. That's why we're excited to see Oppenheimer. We're going to see that it's, it's got, it's a Christopher Nolan film, like a film by Christopher Nolan. And the interesting thing I think that we've been talking about repeatedly is there aren't really any huge failures, I guess you could say maybe some less regarded. Again, I've repeated over and over. You can look at the metrics and the, and the numbers either by Metacritic score box office numbers, whatever. Um, and they're generally successful. Uh, so is a failure going to come? What's going to happen when it does? And what are we going to learn from that? And also just the theme of why we watched Ryan's daughter this time, the, the failure illuminating the, the other successes and being able to see what worked and what didn't. So uh, just a great moment of insight. Great quote. Uh, very pertinent to what we're talking about here. And thanks, Roger Ebert, for for propping us up, for propping me up, at least (laughs) this week. When in doubt, go with the Ebert. (laughs) That is an extremely sound strategy. What a guy. Very, very missed. We want to get to Letterboxd. Yes, please. I I need it. I need need my drug. Um, uh, Yeah, the, the one that I picked is from uh, Ethan Vestby at Ethan Vez. And this is pretty much, I, I tend to pick ones the way that I feel about it. Although I do respect all the, the four-star, five-star reviews on here. I wish I really, I really wanted to like this one. I wish I did. I just don't. So more power to you yeah, if you yeah. find something to like in this one. But this two-star review of this says, uh, dramatically inert, but this is, at the end of the day, just an excuse for David Lean to shoot beaches in ways never seen before and express his grievances with the Irish. <laughs> uh, and then it says, I'm guessing it was a weak field that year, but kind of LOL that John Mills won an Oscar for basically being Adrian Brody in the village, uh, which is true. So No kidding. I mean, Patton won Best Picture that year. You couldn't get the guy who played Omar Bradley to be Best Supporting Actor, right? I, I don't understand. I don't know. I, I had that thought as well, but oh, I need to read that. I got this book about the history of the Oscars. It's like 400 pages long. I need to, to get to reading it. Uh, so maybe there's some explanation in there. About it. I wouldn't look for much beyond 
the Oscars do some really, <laughs> really dumb things. I mean, the Oscars just like to reward that type of. Yeah, I mean, a lot. You, do you remember Crash winning Best Picture? I might only. <laughs> Green Book, uh, right? Yes. Uh, it's, this is very much a like Tropic Thunder making fun of Simple Jack type roles. Uh, <laughs> it's basically what this is. Yeah. Anyway, whether. Yeah, definitely cringy. So. My review is from Surah993 at Surah993. For all its scope, orchestrated handsomely by David Lean, for all its stunning cinematography, photographed expertly by Freddie Young, for all its beautiful haunting music scored magnificently by Maurice Jarre, David Lean's Ryan's Daughter is a staggering perplexity and stupidity. It's a film about an adulterous love affair that's over three hours long. That's it. P.S. John Mills won an Oscar for playing the town idiot. That's cringe. Why? So, my feelings. Why surprised. indeed? Yeah. That perhaps is the, the central question of this movie. The, the story, at least. Why? Why? Why, yes. why God? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Please, God, why? I suppose that might be a question we, we could ask the same words but different inflection when you're in a wartime setting on the beaches of dunkirk there we go that's the way to bring which it is back. where we're heading <laughs> i try i try with these transitions I, you know, some may not always land but i do it so looking looking ahead to that now that we've we have muddled through the the yes. muckle here um, <laughs> where can people find us jake you can find us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. Just really kind of going to be a, an Oppenheimer news outlet now, I think, for the next month and a half. Pretty much. Yeah. If you follow it, most of our engagement comes from Instagram. So we're we're sending out all the, the news and all the Oppenheimer accounts on that. So. Yes. And you can email us if you want at Friends at Dusk Pod at gmail.com. As always, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris four and letterboxd is at eight Oh eight Jake underscore. And what about you, Marshall? I am on Instagram at Marshall.doig, Twitter at Marshall Doig and on letterboxd at M Doig. So please like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are able to leave ratings, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple podcasts on Spotify or anywhere else, if you can do that. And also, if you feel like it, you can support us through our Spotify podcast page. And for our list of resources and everything and where you can find uh, Forgotten Voices of Dunkirk or where to find Ryan's Daughter, if you so choose to watch that. If you have uh, the you time. Out. <laughs> yeah, you can check that out in the show notes. And like we said, next time we are talking Dunkirk. But in the meantime, that will do it for us. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thank you again for listening. Bye.